We're on week two of our study of Second Timothy, and we are far from even getting to its pages. We're far from studying the text. You know, before you want to run a race, you have to uh, tie your shoelaces, right? Um, before you want to go on a journey, a long journey, you get your, um, you make preparations for that long journey. Well, that's what we're doing. We're about to embark on a long journey through Second Timothy. But before we can actually make our first steps, we need to tie our shoelaces. We need to get our equipment together. And that's what we're doing by studying the Apostle Paul to fully and rightly understand his a swan song, if you will, his last uh, letter to his dear uh, son in the faith. We need to prepare ourselves by studying the author himself, the Apostle Paul. So we began that study last week, we're continuing it today, and we'll do so for at least one or two more weeks, just considering the great apostle. I'll begin with an article that I read, it was from the Washington Post, uh, January 12th this year, and if you are, if you play a classical music instrument, especially the violin, you'll appreciate this article. A man emerged from the metro station in Washington, D.C. Plaza, and he positioned himself against the wall beside a trash basket. By most measures, he was nondescript. A young white man in jeans, a long-sleeved t-shirt, and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. From a small case, he removed a violin. Placing the open case at his feet, he shrewdly threw in a few dollars and pocket change as seed money. He swiveled it to face the pedestrian traffic, and this young man began to play. It was 7.51 a.m. on Friday, January 10th, the middle of the morning rush hour. In the next 43 minutes, this violinist performed six classical pieces before approximately 1,100 people who would pass by his corner. Almost all of them were on their way to work. Each passerby had a quick choice to make, one familiar to commuters in any urban area where the occasional street performer is part of the cityscape. Do you stop and listen? Or do you hurry past with a blend of guilt and irritation, aware of this music but annoyed by the unbidden demand on your time and your wallet? Do you throw in a buck or some change, just to be polite? Or do you move on? What if he's really good? Do you have time for beauty? Shouldn't you? What's the moral mathematics of the moment? No one knew it. But the fiddler standing against the bare wall outside this metro station was Joshua Bell, one of the finest classical musicians of the world. It was a one-time child prodigy. At 39, Joshua Bell has arrived as an internationally acclaimed virtuoso. Three days before he appeared at this metro station, he had filled the house at Boston Symphony Hall, where average seats went for $100 each. Bell always performs with the same instrument. He ruled out using another one for this gig. 
He took out his handcrafted Stradivarius violin made in 1713. The price tag is reported at $3.15 million. And he played for 43 minutes some of the most elegant music ever written on one of the most valuable violins ever made. His performance was arranged by the Washington Post as an experiment in context, perception, and priorities. In a banal setting, at an inconvenient time, would beauty transcend? Would beauty be noticed? He did not play popular tunes whose familiarity alone might have drawn interest. That was not the test. These were masterpieces that have endured for centuries on their brilliance alone, soaring music befitting the grandeur of cathedrals and concert halls. So what do you think happened? This question was proposed to Leonard Slatkin, director of the National Symphony Orchestra. Washington Post asked him, what, would you, what do you think would, have, would happen if one of the world's great violinists performed incognito before a traveling rush hour audience of thousand-odd people? Slatkin said, let's assume that he's not recognized and just taken for granted as a street musician. Still, I don't think that if he's really good, he'll go unnoticed. My guess is that up to 75, at least 100 people will stop and a crowd would gather to listen to this virtuoso. How much do you think he will make? Oh, in 43 minutes, at least $150. At least. Well, the Post writes that in the 45 minutes that Joshua Bell played, seven people stopped. And they listened for at most one minute. So, 1,070 people around went by, not noticing Mr. Bell. There was never a crowd, not even for a second. It was all videotaped by a hidden camera, and it's very difficult to watch. Uh, He made less than $35 playing before this hurried audience. British author John Lane wrote in 2003, but called Timeless Beauty. He wrote about the loss of appreciation of beauty in the modern world. He said people still have the capacity to understand beauty, but beauty has become irrelevant to them. In other words, our priorities have changed. Well, this leads us to our study this morning. What about us as Christians? Do we have time to appreciate beauty? Have our priorities so changed that we have no time nor energy to pause and to consider the beauty of a holy life? The beauty of a holy life is merely one that reflects the beauty of Christ's life, the holiness of Christ. A man who lives his life fully for the glory of God is beautiful to Christians. It's precious in the sight of God, therefore precious in the sight of true believers. A man devoted to God and lives out his devotion with utter faithfulness is a treasure. C.S. Lewis said, How little people know who think that holiness is dumb or dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. 
It is irresistible. Blaise Pascal, the serene beauty of a holy life is the most powerful influence in the world next to the power of God. Are our hearts restless this morning? Do we want to just move on to 2 Timothy? Pastor James, give me some takeaways. Give me some applications. Give me some truths today. I want to get to work. I want to live the Christian life. I've got, I'm busy. My heart is restless. I need some practical things to apply through this sermon. Well, that's not our purpose today. Or for next few weeks. I want to, and I want all of us to stop and pause from our hectic pace of going from task to task, event to event. And I want us just to pause and consider and reflect and observe and listen and consider Paul. Consider his holy life. The beauty of it. And what's the application? Just to enjoy it. Just to marvel at it. Just to let it soak in our hearts. Not to jump to an application, not to jump to some task or takeaway, but just to consider God's grace that has operated in this man and what it produced. And just let our hearts be filled with God's beauty and result in praise of God. Let us pause from our frantic pace and carefully consider this humble and godly man and together just appreciate the beauty of the holy life that Christ has wrought in this man. The Apostle Paul, as we said last week, he was a man chosen by God to herald the gospel to the world. Galatians 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. This means that God waited until the time was suitable before the Jews received their Messiah. Within the scope of God's purposes was, was the selection of a man who would be chiefly responsible for carrying out this gospel message to the world. That man was Paul of Tarsus. Our Lord came from the nation of Israel to redeem His people of God. The message of the gospel that saves was carried first and foremostly by this man. He was chosen by God, appointed by God for this task. Sovereign grace of God. And he understood that. Paul understood that God's sovereignty was at work in his life. That God chose him. That God in his supreme power and might was exercising his sovereign redemptive will through him. And his life wasn't his choice. It was God's will. In almost each introduction of his letters to churches and individuals, there is an inkling of God's sovereign will being understood by the Apostle Paul. Romans 1.1, Paul starts, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, 
an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. The fact that I'm an apostle, the will of God, not my will. 2 Corinthians 1.1, again, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the, by the will of God again. He understood, he's not a self-made man. This is not a, a work that he aspired to do or he chose but it's God's sovereignty at work in his life. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Ephesians 1.1, I mean, just again and again, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God. God commanded me. God commissioned me. Second Timothy 1.1 Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Titus 1.1 Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Paul understood all the beauty that's in him is by, by God. God is the author. God is the one who began this work. And God is doing it through his life. So I want to introduce to you the Apostle Paul. I want us to devote our time next few weeks looking at this man. And I want to mostly use his words. I want to highlight to you Paul, Paul's words, how he describes himself. So it's almost an autobiography. I'm not writing a biography. I want to just share the words that Paul used to describe himself so that we get the best picture possible of who he was as an apostle of Christ. So to that end, we want to um, preface our study. We want to load up on the beginning by reading many passages of Scripture, mostly of Paul's words about himself. And then we'll back end it by going description by description of what we had just read. So we're going to start by reading a lot of Scripture passages, all, mostly Paul's own words. I believe you have the list of passages in your bulletin. We're going to start with reading Acts 7:48. Acts 7:48. It begins somewhat of an awkward place, but just kind of start at the tail end of Stephen's martyrdom, and we're going to go to uh, the first time we see the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Acts 7:48. Just to Chapter 8, verse 3, and then we'll go to Saul's conversion. 748, Yet the Most High, this is, these are the words of Stephen, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? 
Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments, garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. But he was not content with persecuting Christians in Jerusalem alone. He wants to go after these Christians who had scattered the nearby regions in Judea and Samaria. Go to chapter 9, verse 1. We'll read most of the chapter. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, 
I have heard many reports about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered a house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately... Something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this man the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? of those who called upon His name? And has He not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Let's move to Acts chapter 22. Paul speaks to the people in Jerusalem. Acts 22, 1 through 21. Paul gives his salvation testimony to a crowd gathered around him in Jerusalem who are threatening him. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who are there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. 
And since I could not see because the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go. For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. A few more passages. Acts chapter 6, 26, 1 through 18. Acts 26, 1 through 18. Paul's defense before King Agrippa. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Because especially you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent in the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial, because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in all the synagogues tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them I persecuted them even to foreign cities in this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests at midday O king I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and all those who journeyed with me. And when he, he, we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? 
And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Two more passages from the epistles. Galatians 1, 11 through 24. Paul recounting his testimony to the churches in Galatia. Galatians 1, 11 through 24. For I would have no... I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God before me. And finally, that famous passage in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. Philippians 3, 4 through 11. Let's start with verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. These are all key passages. Paul, in his own words, describing himself, his ministry, mostly his salvation testimony. You don't need to turn there, but turn there in your memory banks. The first passage that we read a few minutes ago, the first introduction of Paul in the New Testament, chapter 7, verse 58, Luke describes him, a young man named Saul. The scene again is the martyrdom of Stephen. Luke the doctor focuses the attention of his book to a young man named Saul who is mainly responsible for Stephen's death. Now Luke describes him as a young man. So it is from this statement we can guess that he was born around the same time as the birth of Jesus. We cannot be certain as to the precise age indicated by that word. The Greek word is Neoneus. In excavations in Berea, Greece, um, it was found that a group of men who were aged 18 to 22 were termed Neoniscoi, as young men. However, other ancient sources indicate that the age range suggested by this word includes anyone from 18 to age 40. The book of Acts tells us that Saul was a member of the Sanhedrin, the governing party of Israel. The Babylonian Talmud gives the minimum age as a requirement to be a member of the Sanhedrin as 40 years old. And you must be at least 40 years old to be ordained as a rabbi. This suggests to us that Paul, or Saul, at the martyrdom of Stephen around 35, 36 AD, was at least 40 years old. At least 40 years old. Luke calls him a young man. Elder Bob just turned 42. So Bob must be encouraged by 758 that Lou called him a young man. Maybe your children will memorize that verse this week. Luke also tells us that his name is Saul. It's his Jewish name. Acts 13.9, Luke said, But Saul, who was also called Paul, it is often mistakenly asserted that Paul changed his name from the Hebrew Saul to the Greek Paul after his conversion, that when he began his ministry to the Gentiles, he chose the name Paul 
that he would better ably minister to the Gentile world. That is not the case. In reality, Paul had both names from birth. It was required of Roman citizens that, that they be registered with three names, Tria Nomia. The three names consisted of a first name, family name, and a given additional name. So Saul was his Hebrew name. We don't know his last name, his family name. But at birth, his family gave him also a Greek name, Paul. Right, we understand this. Those of us with, from a foreign country, right? I was uh, talking to Alex and asked him his Chinese name. And he gave him permission to use it in the sermon today. And so his first name is Alex. Last name, family name is Feng. And his Chinese name is Manchul. Right? Shane is his English name. Lee is his family name. His Korean name is Kwangchul. Right? Same with Apostle Paul. His Hebrew name was Saul. We don't know his family name. But at birth, his parents, because they were living in a Greek world, a Hellenized world, gave him the name Paul. It means, its Latin name is Paulus, the Greek form is Paul. It means little or small, maybe an indication that he was small from birth, can't be sure. But Paul is not the Roman or Greek form of the name Saul. They're two completely separate names. They're not, it's not the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Saul. Uh, we can't help but wonder about the physical appearances, appearance of the great apostle, his physical characteristics. 2 Corinthians 10.10, his opponents at Corinth referred to his bodily presence as weak, as small in stature, that he speaks with boldness and strength, but personally, physically, he is unimpressive. The Greek word used here often means weak or feeble, without strength. It can also mean sick or sickly, referring to bodily disability. The same word is used in Acts 4 and Acts 5, referring to a lame man whom God healed. Paul talks about this thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12:7, possibly being some kind of physical malady, some bodily illness. We're not certain what it is. It could be the thorn in the flesh, one of the leaders who are opposing Paul in the Corinthian church. But very possibly he's pointing to some physical malady that he was stricken with. We might have a clue in Galatians 6.11 where he, he says that he is writing large letters with his own hands indicating a physical impairment which necessitated his use of secretaries for his written correspondence. Paul rarely wrote with his own hands. He dictated his letters and someone, some scribe, wrote down the letters for him. Perhaps because he had, a fail, he had failing eyesight. Romans was written by Tertius, for example. In Galatians 4.15, Paul also wrote to the Galatians that you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. 
perhaps indicating that because of his poor eyesight, the Galatians loved him so much that they would have given him their eyes to see. Beyond this, the Bible does not give us any more information about the physical characteristics of Paul. But outside the Bible, in a letter written by uh, a second century presbyter, um, gives us a physical description, his version, his description of the Apostle Paul. Somewhat remarkable, appears quite early in Christian literature. It is in the beginning part of the apocryphal writing, Acts of Paul, which Tertullian, writing in the 2nd century, said was composed before his time. So, um, Bible scholars said, say that this was written around A.D. 160. It's not part of biblical writing, but many argue that it is hardly likely that this was invented. Very likely that this was an eyewitness account of um, someone describing Paul's physical features. As we read this, the description is not very flattering to Apostle Paul. The story goes like this. In the setting of the story, Paul arrives in Iconium, a city in Central Central Asia Minor. Christians have gathered to welcome the Apostle. One of these is Onesiphorus, who may or may not be the same man mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.19. This man had never seen the Apostle Paul. When Paul finally appears, this apocryphal writer describes him as follows. As he saw Paul coming, a man of little stature, thin-haired upon the head, crooked in the legs, of good state of body, with eyebrows joining, and nose somewhat crooked, full of grace. Sometimes he appeared like a man, and sometimes he had the face of an angel. A slightly different translation appears in M.R. James' edition of the Apocryphal New Testament, as he saw Paul coming, a man small in size, bald-headed, bandy-legged, well-built, eyebrows meeting, nose somewhat hooked, full of grace, but sometimes he seemed like a man, and sometimes he had the face of an angel. So physically, he was unimpressive. He wasn't a gallant, stately man. He was a weak man, full of physical maladies. And yet, He had the heart of a giant. Paul tells us several times that he is from Tarsus. Acts 21.39, Acts 22.3 tells us that Saul was born in Tarsus, an important city in the Roman province of Cilicia. It was no ordinary city. It is located near Asia Minor and where Syria meet not far from Antioch. He was not merely a person born in Tarsus, someone who was visiting that city. He had citizens' rights in Tarsus. We may confidently assume that Paul was careful to keep within demonstrable law and custom that when he claimed to be a Tarsinian citizen, 
he had proof of that citizenship as well. This uh, city was famous for its university. It ranked with those of Athens and Alexandria as among the most honored in the Roman world. So apparently he came to, to Jerusalem to study under Camillo, and he went back to Tarsus because he had never met Jesus of Nazareth until Christ's resurrection. One more, a few more, about his family, his marital status. Paul's marital status is somewhat perplexing. In 1 Corinthians 7, 7, Paul said, I wish all men were like I am. Each has, but each has his own gift. He's talking about celibacy, obviously. He wishes all men had this gift of celibacy because in times of persecution and for the purpose of the gospel, it's much easier, much more expedient. But each man has his own gift. So when he wrote 1 Corinthians 7, he was not married, he was single. And yet, to become a member of the Sanhedrin, a man must be married and a father. He was one of the official witnesses of the stoning of Stephen. Stoning was an action ordered by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin only had the authority to commit um, martyrdom of someone for blaspheming the temple grounds. In Acts 9, he had an official letter from the high priest going to Damascus, so he had the power of the Sanhedrin. In view of these evidences, Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. He had been married, but sometime after his conversion, after the beginning of his ministry, he was single. What happened to his family, what happened to his wife is, is a mystery. No one knows. Either his wife left him as an unbeliever. She could not accept the gospel message and divorced him. The exception clause of 1 Corinthians 7, unbeliever can leave a relationship and you're not bound to that relationship. So she left or she passed away. She died. No one knows. Tradition does not tell us. Scripture does not even mention it. We have no way of knowing. Maybe when we go to heaven, maybe that's the first question we would ha- ask Paul. What happened to your wife? All right. We read of a sister in Acts 23.16 and a sister's son. When his life was threatened, they came to his aid to help him. We read of his other relatives in Romans 16.7. But beyond that, we know very little about his family. More important than his citizenship of Tarsus is that he was a Roman citizen. A Roman citizen. A highly coveted privilege. In Acts 22, 27 through 29, the authorities came and said to him, Are you a Roman citizen? And Paul replied, Yes, I am. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul replied, I didn't buy. He didn't say this. I didn't buy the citizenship. He said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. 
And the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Great privilege and honor came with Roman citizenship. Wherever a citizen went in the Roman Empire, a Roman citizen was entitled to all the rights and privileges Roman law provided. These rights, these privileges, included a fair and public trial for a citizen accused of any crime. These privileges were exclusively granted only to citizens of Rome alone. They were protected from execution without legal formalities, exempted from certain forms of punishment such as crucifixion, The law did not allow any official to scourge or chain or even kill a Roman citizen. Could not torture a citizen. Paul used his Roman citizenship to his advantage. He he did not buy the citizenship. He was born a citizen, telling us that his dad was also a citizen of Rome as well. So he came from a privileged a noble family. More important than his Tarzanian citizenship, more important than his Roman citizenship, was that the Apostle Paul was a Jew. He was from the nation of Israel. Acts 22.3 Turn to Philippians 3, verses 4-6. through 6. Paul highlights to us here Um, his Jewish heritage worthy of our consideration. In verse 5, Paul tells us that he was circumcised on the eighth day in exact compliance with the law. In Genesis 17, Luke 12, the law required that circumcision should be performed on the eighth day of birth, from birth. In some cases, due to sickness or some other cause, it was delayed. For those who are converted to Judaism as an adult, of course, it was delayed. But Paul said, not for me. The law was complied with, literally, specifically, on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel, descended from the patriarch Israel or Jacob. He could trace his genealogy back as far as any other Jew. He was not a convert from the Gentile world, nor were any of his ancestors proselytes or converts from the Gentile world. He had all the advantages which could be derived from a regular descent from the venerable founders of the Jewish nation. In fact, he was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Remember in 931 B.C., the nation of Israel was torn in two. There was a civil war. Ten tribes were part of the north, and two tribes were part of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, or the southern nation, southern kingdom. In 722 B.C., because of their... Uh, ungodliness, because of their sinfulness, the Assyrians came and destroyed the northern kingdom. Only two tribes left faithful to God, Judah and Benjamin. 
Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. The last two remaining tribes, faithful to God. He was named Saul, most likely named after the first king of Israel, who was also from the tribe of Benjamin. He took pride in that. Not just a Jew, not just a Jew who was in compliance with the law from birth, but not just a Jew uh, from the nation of Israel in compliance with the law, but from the tribe of Benjamin. And he says further on, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Philippians 3, Hebrew of Hebrews. What is Paul saying here? The distinction that Paul is making here is linguistic and cultural. After the division of the kingdoms, after the collapse of the northern kingdom, after the collapse of the southern kingdom, starting in 586 BC, under Roman occupation, Jews scattered throughout the region, and they became Hellenized. They conformed to the language and culture of the surrounding nations. So in language and culture, they were Hellenized. Much like many of us, um, when I was in high school, I had a geometry teacher, and she would tell us uh, there were two kinds of Korean uh, math students. There were the good Korean math students who came from Korea recently, and they were obedient, they were studious, they were submissive, they were compliant, they were a joy to teach, they excelled in math. And then there were Americanized Koreans who were unruly, not submissive, rebellious, and didn't care to study hard. He said, James, you're an Americanized Korean. <laughs> I agree, that's true. Right? Well, likewise here for many of us. Right? I mean, I use illustration of, maybe I'll use Rex. Right? I should because I, right, I have it down right here. Right? Third or fourth generation Japanese American. Speaks very little Japanese. Right? He goes to a baseball game. I don't think, you know, he eats sushi. He eats Dodger dogs. Right? July 4th was spent more, you know, watching baseball game rather than a sumo wrestling match. Right? He's Americanized. He's not Japanese of Japanese. He's just he's Japanese American, Korean American, Chinese American. Paul was surrounded by uh, such people, Hellenized Jews. Jews who are Jews ethnically, but not culturally, not linguistically. They all, speak, they all spoke Greek. Right? They all lived like Gentiles. Right? They, all, they didn't practice the traditions of Judaism, the religion of Judaism. Not so with Paul. It appears that Paul was born into a Jewish family who were Roman citizens in a Greek-speaking city outside of Israel, but the spoken language at home was not Greek, but was Aramaic, and Hebrew. And the culture that was practiced at the home was not Greek culture, but was Hebrew, but it was Hebrew culture. And he was zealous for Jewish culture. Galatians 1.14 And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I was for the tradition of my fathers. He was Hebrew by birth, 
He was also Hebrew by his culture and language. And he was also Hebrew by his choice. One more and we'll conclude his religious training. Verse 6. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Acts 22.3. I was brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. So he was brought up under strict religious training. He had a traditional orthodox upbringing. In his earliest years at home, Saul would have learned to recite the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. Many parents, Jewish parents boast that the first phrase that their children learned was the great Shema, Hear, O God... Hear, O Israel, your God is one. From the age of five, Saul would have began memorizing parts of the great Hallel, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. The portions of the Psalms that were used at the Feast of Passover. When he was about six, Saul would have gone to the synagogue to learn reading and writing. The only textbook used was the Scriptures. But the Jews believed that the scriptures contained everything one needed to know about the world in the realm of science, art, religion, or law. This kind of pedagogy is still being practiced by Orthodox Jews to this day. At about the age of 10, Paul would have begun memorizing large portions of the Old Testament, even memorizing uh, commentaries of the scriptures. At the age of 12 or 13, Paul would have been given the rite of bar mitzvah. This rite of passage for a Jewish young man where Paul would have been declared as an adult bar mitzvah under the law. This qualified him to be a member of the synagogue and someone who was accountable to his actions before God's law. We're not certain, I'm not sure, but Romans 7-9 might be pointing to his um, bar mitzvah experience. He said, when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. I was taught the law of God, tradition of the elders, taught the scriptures. At the age of 12 or 13, when I came under the law, accountable to the law, responsible to the law. When the law came, sin revived in me. Sin came alive. At that point, I died. I died for I was hopeless before the law. All these are the divine workings of God. Preparing this man from birth, nation of Israel, Specific obedience to the law of God, circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, you know, so much pride that he was one of two tribes that were faithful to Yahweh to the end. From where the first king of Israel came, he was named after Saul. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was not Hellenized. He kept the tradition of his forefathers. As to the, the legalistic religious training, he was blameless. We'll study next week. He was a Pharisee. 
a separatist, devoted to the law of God. God set him up sovereignly, divinely brought him up and prepared him for him meeting Christ, the risen Lord, on Acts 9, where God's sovereignty and providence, God's salvific plan will come together and converge on that road. We'll study that next week. Let's pray. Lord, we are well aware now through the scriptures that nothing is left up to chance, that your redemptive plan, even post-resurrection, establishing of the church through the Apostle Paul was not just coincidences, was not just happenstance. It wasn't just the afterthought that you put together. Lord, you, you're sovereign. You divinely orchestrated all these events to create the scriptures and to establish your church, all according to your sovereign will. And Lord, we look back and we say it was perfect. Your wisdom, your ways are perfect. Lord, as we consider our lives, we know that our past is not by chance. That our past is not by coincidence. That our salvation just didn't happen. Lord, before we were even born, you chose us, you knew us. And you selected and chose when, where, how, our influences growing up, all the experiences that we would, we would have. And Lord, you waited for us on our road to Damascus. And Lord, you saved us all to your glory. Lord, um, we marvel at Paul's salvation. We marvel at our salvation. And Lord, we uh, declare to you that your way is perfect, that you are, you are sovereign. Lord, help us to step back and praise you for the life of Paul, for his salvation, for his ministry for his God-saturated life. Give you praise. And also give you praise by endeavoring to live life, imitating him as he imitated Christ. Jesus' name we pray.